I would like to begin by asking us all a question. When was the last time that you found yourself in a completely new circumstance or situation? Uh, Something changed rapidly and you found yourself having to try to reorient yourself to these new circumstances. Uh, Perhaps it was a time when you became married and two became one, two lives were now shared and trying to figure out how to navigate all the newness of that. Or perhaps a child, you, you had your first child or maybe your second or your third and everyone adds a new sense of change to a family dynamic and you're trying to figure out how to make that work, or perhaps you have lost a job. That's a traumatic thing, Uh, entering into a life of of busyness and work in in certain areas and certain assignments, and then suddenly that is gone. Or a new job where you find yourself with a whole new set of colleagues, uh, a place to work and, and, and things to do. It's all quite disorienting at times, and think about that. When is the last time that you had an experience like that? Uh, Perhaps you moved house. They say uh, that one of the most stressful things you can do, especially if you've lived in one place for a long time, is to uproot your family or your your life and move to a different place. Uh, Whether it's a different part of the country or even around the world is even more so. Think about that for a minute. When was the last time you experienced that kind of disorientation of a completely new circumstance? I remember back in 1996 when I was playing in a band uh, I was 26 years old, and my band, it was an amazing privilege, we were asked to come and tour in Japan. And I grew up in a very small, a relatively small compared to a lot, of the, especially Los Angeles where I live near, now, a small Scottish city. And it was not diverse at all, culturally or in any way. We all spoke the same language, we all spoke English, uh, although if you hear that accent, you might be surprised to know that it is English. Uh, feel free to look it up on YouTube, search for Dundee accent. Um, but, but we all spoke the same kind of uh, dialect and, and, and language. We generally the same kinds of foods. Uh, it has become more diverse now. Since I visited recently, it's a lot more. They actually have a Mexican restaurant in Dundee, Scotland, which I didn't get a chance to try. Um, but very similar types of people, a homogenous kind of a society. So in Japan, stepping out of the downtown Tokyo railway station into just this Blade Runner-esque crazy different kind of a place full of all kinds of different people speaking different languages, different customs, etiquette, everything was almost overwhelming for me. And to try to navigate where I fit was, was stressful initially. Um, luckily, rock and roll is a universal language, so we had that form of communication uh, between the people who came to the shows and my band. Um, but in two short weeks, I spent a lot of the time just feeling quite out of my depth and also really fearful that I wouldn't make some kind of faux pas of some uh, breach of etiquette and do something that you never do in that country. Uh, I was actually vegan at the time, um, completely vegan, no dairy, no meat, and ordering food to eat in Japanese restaurants with no knowledge written or spoken of the language was a big challenge. There were lots of sign language of various animals and then trying to put across that we don't eat those things. You know, travel is a wonderful thing, though. I had a fantastic time. My band ended up going three times to Japan, uh, and and each time it did become somewhat easier. It's a wonderful thing. It stretches us, though. That's a good thing, to experience different cultures, perhaps even learn from some of the beautiful aspects of another culture that are maybe lacking in our own and, and bring those into our lives. Every culture under heaven has something to teach us. It's also good to experience sometimes what it means to be in the minority, and perhaps that's an experience we can bring back and have empathy and compassion for people in our own context who are experiencing being in the minority um, to give us understanding. Um, 
and to grow. As travel can be amazing, but it's not always fun. I remember a time my van was on tour in Europe and this dreadful stomach flu swept through the van, a very small van, close quarters of three bands and all, almost everyone became violently sick. There's almost nothing worse than being really sick when you're away from home. Um, travel can be amazing, but not all, not all travel. People don't always travel for fun or recreation or even adventure. Some people go uh, to a completely different culture for really serious reasons. People who travel to other countries for NGOs or charitable organizations or missions organizations experience a great deal of this kind of dynamic of being disoriented in a new culture. Uh, they often go in response to uh, the needs of a population in a time of great crisis. And what is vitally important for them to learn as quickly as possible is to speak and understand the language, to learn the culture, to learn the unique rhythms of this new environment. There's a huge paradigm shift involved. And actually, though it's challenging and painful in many ways, it can reap incredible rewards for those who allow themselves to fully engage in this process, to enter in, allow themselves to be taught and changed by even these disorienting pressures. And in fact, the success or otherwise of the mission upon which they set out uh, will likely depend on their ability to become as rooted as possible in this new place, in this new time and culture. You know, the concept of education is at its best, basically the implementation of this process in a very limited and targeted way. The doctors and nurses who we're so grateful for and who are currently involved at the front line of this crisis were not born with these skills or the knowledge to contribute to the healing processes of the body for those who have become sick. Their knowledge and skills also did not come easily. In fact, if you've done any degree of schoolwork, you know that learning can be an exhausting and exerting thing to do. Stepping into what seems like a completely alien tech, uh, territory, having to learn the specific language of that subject and the content. Um, and, and it forever changes us. Education is transformative if we will step fully into it and let ourselves be taught, giving us bigger horizons and for sure humility because I have found uh, that the more I can know, the more I know, the, the more I realize there is still to know. You know, in each of these cases, whether it's travel to another place for, for any kind of purpose or just the process of education, what we need are other people or a person who's thoroughly acquainted with that culture and those customs, that language or those particular subjects. A native speaker, a skilled teacher, an experienced and seasoned traveler. You know, the parallels of these uh, examples may uh, have occurred to you in, in relation to what is happening right now. It seems quite clear that what is normal for us in life, for most of us in life today, now, in this season, is perhaps being set aside at least for a season, if not completely changed forever. And this is a time when we find ourselves experiencing moments of disorientation in many ways, both large and small. We had a staff meeting this past week and I asked the New Song staff in light of the journals that we distributed last week about points of disorientation that we're experiencing, what is disorienting for you at the moment? And one of them very honestly said, everything is disorienting. Everything is disorienting. Do you feel that? Is that your experience right now? Here at New Song Church, we've made some commitments based on two strong convictions. The first of these convictions is that God is fully present with us now, 
fully present, more than we can see, more than we can imagine. He is with us. He is here. And the second is our community needs us. Our community needs us. We are planted in this place for a purpose. And and that is that our community needs us as we engage with the God who is here. So that the commitment here is to step fully with eyes wide open and receptive hearts into the new context that we find ourselves in, no matter what the context might be, to recognize that we have a mission to pursue for the benefit of our neighbors, to know who we are first and who we are meant to be. And it also requires us to learn about these neighbors, these communities, these contexts. And in many ways, we don't understand and we've got to take the time to do this because we are surrounded by many people who come from very different backgrounds and cultures and experiences and currently are in those we've got to understand. As one writer said, before we can ever hope to evangelize anyone, we must first let them evangelize us, that we would be changed by our encounters with them. So we we desire to let this experience School us, educate us, show us the places where we lack the knowledge or skills to engage with the broader horizons of this world and actually mature and grow through this and even because of this as God's people made in his image. To grab hold of life with energy, with both hands and actually live as close as possible to the leading far edge of human divine engagement and experience. This is definitely not easy But the wonderful thing is that there is a God who is here. And in this journey, we have one who knows the landscape and knows us and can teach us, guide us and accompany us through all of the newness of it. All the disorienting factors of being here now as the people of God. And last week, we we took a look to begin to take a look for these 10 weeks of what it means to be human throughout seasons and moments of disorientation, and then how to actually best live in the midst of these moments and seasons. We looked at some rhythms of human life suggested by uh, uh, Dr. Brueggemann, uh, and, and we sought to present ourselves as people who will embrace the challenges and the change that these experiences will bring us. And there's three uh, seasons that this author talked about that we looked at. And the first is orientation. When things are generally settled, things are good. I know where I fit and I have the ability and the skills to, to navigate my current situation. And it comes from the fact that God has created a world that is in some ways predictable. He, he is faithful. And the Psalms reflected that understanding and that position, that season. But then uh, disorientation comes where we said like the wheels fall off. Something enters in that, that causes us to find ourselves in a place where we don't know what it is that we're to do in response to it. We're disoriented. But then coming through somehow to a new orientation in the midst of the disorientation, a reorientation that is a new thing that we find ourselves changed And so these movements in life that we talked about, the first is a movement from orientation, a settled orientation to a place of disorientation. And this happens in so many ways and so many times, both large and small, and we identify that in our lives. But then this more mysterious and remarkable and perhaps costly movement is from disorientation, that place where like the psalmist, I cry out, God, God, have you forsaken me? And suddenly there's this flash of grace, this moment of understanding, and I find myself engaged with God in this new direction. Um, And we looked at the Psalms, how they reflect these stories, these very human stories uh, of people 
engaging with life as it is, but in a place where God is, and that all seasons are appropriate for communication with God. So we promised last week that we would put some flesh and bones onto these seasons and these ideas by looking at some people in the story of God and the story of mankind, human beings, that maybe show this, illustrate this. And the first one we're gonna do this week is to look at some orientation, disorientation, and new orientation that took place around the epicenter of the Christian faith, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was born and who lived and who died and was raised again. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, and the men and women in particular who followed him, who we call the disciples. The disciples are the first people in the first century who first followed Jesus. So let's think about orientation in terms of these people's lives. What was the settled normal for these men and women if such a thing was possible in a very challenging world? Well, I think there was because human beings tend to always uh, move towards finding some normal. And, And for them, it was a great variety. Before they met Jesus, they all had somewhat lives of settled orientation in one direction or another some rhythm of life oriented towards a cause or a goal. Uh, There were many different people who followed Jesus. The first uh, we can look at is the fishermen. For example, Peter, John, and Andrew. And, And they were oriented toward knowledge of the ways of fish and the techniques used to catch them. That was the uh, preoccupation of their lives and their occupation and their livelihoods depended on being good at this. They were men of business. They had to ensure that they kept the expenses below the income so they could feed their families. A great deal of effort was spent mending nets and watching the ways of weather and water. Secondly, Matthew was a tax collector And he was oriented towards maintaining his own personal safety whilst exploiting the limits of his power that he'd been given by the Roman government to collect taxes, high taxes, and skim some stuff off the top for himself. That was kind of legitimately given him to do that. That was his income. Charge them more, keep that for yourself. There was a man called Simon, and he was a zealot, they called him, or a revolutionary. And his his orientation was towards plotting the violent overthrow, violence if necessary, of these Roman occupiers. He was oriented towards solidarity with his fellow revolutionaries and towards exploiting any weakness in the Roman administration's rule, looking for that moment where they could revolt and take over, restore their country back to autonomy. They were religious men, People of power in both religion and politics, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they were oriented towards purity of religion and the maintenance of their traditions and their power. And we've talked about, these are all men we've talked about, and they're more familiar perhaps with the male disciples, but there were many, many women who followed Jesus. For example, Mary Magdalene, Salome, Joanna, we talked about these women on Easter They also came from various orientations and backgrounds. Mary Magdalene, one of the most talked about women in the gospel, was was set free by Jesus from from demonic possession. And many others have been set free from various diseases or afflictions. And some were actually wealthy women. They were accustomed to better things in life. Uh, But many, many disciples, both male and female, were those of the poor and marginalized. They were oriented toward just trying to eke out some form of living in a pretty difficult position at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Their orientation was to struggle, to survive. That was their normal, was one of struggle. Every one of the disciples have a different background, different temperament, personality, and place in life. But now... 
with Jesus coming, they each received this call to become a disciple. Jesus says, come follow me. Orient yourself towards me, a new place of orientation, a targeted one. Jesus says, follow me. They're called to listen to him, to watch, to learn. They were called to trust and obey him. They were called to be family together from all these different diverse backgrounds. Very difficult at times, but this was the call. And of course, like every human being, they were desired to find their new normal. Okay, what are the rules of this new way? Okay, I'm following you now, Jesus. I'm expecting this is gonna be better than where I was before, but what are the rules? What should I do? What should I be? But really, it wasn't that simple. This new settled orientation proved elusive for them because really what they were called to enter into was this. It was a constant process of change. And no longer were they to try find a, a level place and stay there. They were called to step into the discovery of the landscape, the customs and the language of an entirely different, a new way to be human. That's what Jesus was bringing, a new way. But they had a guide. They had a reliable guide. As Jesus' disciples, they had a reliable guide for this entire program of change. So Jesus called them. Jesus called the fishermen away from their nets and told them from now on they would fish for people, whatever that would mean. Learn those ways, commit their lives to announcing and serving the kingdom of God. Jesus called the tax collectors away from their money tables to a life of justice and generosity. Jesus called the zealous revolutionaries to lay down their weapons of violence and focus on a greater evil than even the Roman Empire and take up the arms of prayer and ministry to engage in that warfare for the souls and lives of people, to point to a greater freedom than simply political freedom. Jesus called the religious men and the politicians to leave the world of power and purity and become servants in the midst of suffering. And in the company of Jesus, the women would no longer be limited in prospects or devalued in personhood, but be equal co-sharers in the community and the work of this kingdom. But of course, as like all human beings do, they sought to make their new situation as settled, controllable, and predictable as possible because they're people. It's for the they sought this, even without possibly identifying that this was what was happening. So uh, a constant struggle throughout the records and the stories of Jesus with these people. Uh, the past, always a temptation to, what to, to want to return to what was known, a nostalgia, uh, looking back and thinking it was perhaps better than the constant uh, struggle of the times they find themselves in. The present, they were always telling Jesus, there's a better way, Jesus. Why don't we try this? This will be easier. This will achieve your goals in a better way. It's exactly what the devil did in the wilderness, tried to shortcut Jesus to an easier, better way. But that's that place uh, of seeking just to find a settled orientation, to be comfortable. And then the future, they had hopes and plans for the future. They felt they were making an investment in many times. We are giving our lives. What is there in, us, in, in this for us? When will we find this place of orientation again where we can rest Making plans, they argued together, making plans for who would be the top people in Jesus' cabinet when he becomes the king. Who would sit on the right? Who would sit on the left? But Jesus said to him throughout all of this, his words were the same. He simply said, whoever wants to be my disciple 
That's what I've called, been called to, be my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves this, this struggle to fight, to find comfort, to find a place of security where I know all the rules and I'm in control of, of, of so much. Jesus says, don't worry about that. Follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And as Jesus, Jesus said, no servant is greater or above their master. And Jesus led this way. He, they, he led and they were to follow. And as the master does, so should those who follow do. But this begins to look really unappealing to these disciples. The closer Jesus gets to the city of Jerusalem, where his greatest enemies were, and then the final showdown with the authorities there, they could see this thing coming. This disorientation was becoming worse. And Jesus, what are you doing? Follow me, follow me. So what is disorientation for these men and women who follow Jesus? Well, we could try to look at specific moments throughout the gospels and say, well, there's a moment of disorientation. Oh, there's another moment of disorientation. And certainly there are many that we could highlight. I mean, the crucifixion and, and, and Jesus' death and burial being the kind of pinnacle of that. But the fact is for these original followers of Jesus, their lives seem to consist of one long journey into disorientation, punctuated by their brief pleadings and attempts at, reorientation of a settled norm. And even the miracles, you would think, well, the miracles, that would be a place of just rejoice, finally something good, but it actually utterly freaked them out. They became afraid of the power and an apparent recklessness sometimes and disregard for their lives of this man, Jesus, who said, follow me. Fishermen know not to cross lakes when there's any possibility of a storm. And Jesus is like, get in the boat, people. We're gonna cross over to the other side. What is he doing? And then in the first century on a Friday, sometime in the 33rd year or thereabouts of the first century, Jesus goes and gets himself arrested and executed. And the disciples enter into disorientation with a period of safe at home isolation behind locked doors, it says, in fear of the authorities. I think the parallels may be clear there for our situation that they're in hiding. They have narrowed down their lives to such a small extent because of their fear. And not only now are they not princes and princesses sitting in the court of King Jesus, but apparently even all the things that he may have been leading them towards, much of which they didn't understand, seem to be dead, as dead as he is dead. But, you know, good news, right? We know what happened. We celebrated Easter. Jesus rises from the dead. So of course a calm assurance and a settled norm and orientation comes over his followers. That's actually not true. This next phase in the whole journey, Jesus is alive, uh, is another crazy paradigm shift into disorientation for his followers. Easter Sunday, uh, we talked about the text uh, in Mark where the women come to the tomb and are told that Jesus is alive. And we ended with the proclamation in that text uh, in verse seven where it says, the angel said, he is risen, he is not here, go tell his disciples. And we ended on that verse, but really the very next verse in that passage in Mark, uh, Mark 16 verse eight says, that the women trembling and bewildered, the way they went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They were afraid. And Jesus' disciples also behind locked doors were similarly disoriented. They, they were not finding this place that they had sought of 
everything is good now, everything is normal, let's just stay here. Luke 24, it says, while they were still talking, these disciples gathered behind locked doors. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Disorientation. Who would want to sign up for that? Let's go back to our nets, folks. Let's go back to the tax table. Let's go back to legalistic, rigid rules of religion and, and power. We'll know where the boundaries, we'll know where we stand and who we are. People will respect us in that place. We don't, we don't feel ambitious anymore. But reorientation was present and possible. But where was it for these men and women? Where was reorientation or new orientation, newness, life for these people? Well, here's the thing. This reorientation, new orientation was happening all the way along, all the way through this journey. And what they were experiencing as disorientation was actually the process, the very process of creating new life in them all along, but they couldn't see it because it was a process of what Jesus said, dying to themselves, and that itself was the way to life to new life and it could not have been gained in any other way and Jesus knew this. So reorientation came as a surprise to them. Reorientation is never predictable. You cannot predict it. It is a surprise that God brings in right in that place where the, the darkness seems darkest and the hopelessness seems deepest. But you know, it shouldn't have surprised them. Jesus told them all along what was going to happen and if they listen to their old scriptures, their Old Testament or uh, the Pentateuch and, and these writings of Moses and the prophets and the wisdom books, all the stuff that God had said about him being the potter and his people being the clay or about God removing their hearts of stone and replacing them with a heart of flesh or about dead bones rising up or about metal being refined in the fire may have given them a clue that this very process that was so difficult was the means and the way to life and to renewal. But it was hard, but the beautiful thing is, for these men and women, reorientation always involved grace. In fact, reorientation is a grace, always then and now and forever. It is not deserved or merited according to our behavior. And it was certainly not for these people. Despite all these men and women failed to do or be or think, Jesus persisted with them. They were not cast aside because they were disoriented or acting out of those places of confusion, fear, and instability. And they said some really dumb things. Read the gospels. There's so many things that they said and Jesus shakes his head. Uh, but he didn't leave them. And Peter one that just so often spoke in such great terms about what he was gonna do and be or what he would never do, ends up denying Jesus vehemently three times. I don't even know him. From this place of disorientation, he was frightened. So does Jesus say, hey, you're a failure. You denied me, you're done. No, what, what does he do? He restores him. When Jesus comes back, he specifically calls for Peter. And for the three times that he denies him, he gives him an opportunity to find restoration, specifically three times. He says, do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, you know I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me, Peter? You know I love you. And that grace is a reorientation and that reorientation is a grace. But it's not simply forgiveness of Peter. 
and then business as usual. Jesus brought a powerful next step into the reorientation process because when he said, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, I love you, Lord. Jesus then said these words, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Care for my sheep. Reorientation was always towards God and always is towards God and to others. Towards God, a dependence upon God, a greater dependence on God and, and an understanding of his purposes and his power, a reorientation. My compass turns towards God and I'm oriented in the right direction for, the, for a fruitful life. And always towards others, the grace that I receive, I'm called to extend to others and to share the good news of what I've experienced, even in the darkest places, to the ends of the earth. Now with Jesus' command, go into all the nations. I've overcome the world. Go, share the good news. So what application might we take today? 2020, it's a difficult year so far. And I know that is not even across the board for all of you. For some of you, this is pretty much beyond anything you could have imagined. Uh, many of our plans and our dreams have just have gone. And, and there's a reason to, to grieve those things and don't minimize how you're feeling. Uh, those are legitimate. But for, for those who have decided to follow Jesus, there, there's a very strong fact that we need to understand and we can see in the lives of these first followers. And it's this, the discipleship is always a call away from settled orientation. Always a call away from settled orientation. I was thinking it's like a river. Uh, a river that is sluggish and slow be can become stagnant uh, with the settled silt on the bottom and, and the mud. But a river that is flowing, is, is, it seems vibrant and alive. And Jesus said to the disciples and to us, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Movement, it's always movement. And against our impulses to want to settle and to stop, Jesus keeps saying, come forward. But he says there's two things we need to do in order to do that. The first is deny ourselves. I mean, I think partly don't take yourself so seriously, um, but denying those parts which are clearly and purely self-oriented in that desire to stay where I am, to exercise complete safety, complete security. He says, just set that aside. Take up your cross. That involves two things. There's a burden there. You're gonna carry burdens and it involves sacrifice. Um, and this requires an ongoing deep sense of intentionality. It doesn't just happen by accident. Disciples have to follow. They, they deny, they take up the cross and they follow. It's a daily uh, work. Disciples are disciplined, but they're always disciplined into this process, uh, away from settled orientation and into following Jesus, whatever that might look like. Um, and actually, it really fits who we were. The fishermen were called away from their nets, the tax collector away from his tax collecting, um, uh, and the women were called away from a place in society which was uh, demeaning and lower into something greater. But everyone was called away from whatever was their norm. Uh, and, and the ways in which they experienced maybe the, the pain and the, and the struggle was the, because of the very things that they had left were the things that anchored them to themselves and this world. And Jesus says, leave that behind and trust me that I'm taking you somewhere different. 
Uh, but we, we naturally shrink back from this because we instinctively know what it might cost us. Because discipleship is always a call into disorientation. Becoming like Jesus involves being changed. Not simply reformation, which is often the way religion's seen, like being a better person. Just be nicer, be a better person. It's actually about transformation. This is the reorientation that we seek. Transformation, becoming a new person. A new, behold, the old is gone, the new has come, and we remain, we retain our personality. There's so many things that we remain ourselves, but there's a newness to us in this transformation. Uh, and, but just like for the disciples, the paradoxical truth is that those very moments of disorientation will be where we find ourselves reoriented and we may not even notice it happening. Uh, we, we studied James a few months ago and it begins with this call to the disoriented. James says, he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to the 12 tribes, so these are Jewish Christians scattered among the nations, scattered. And what does he say next? Seek to find a settle and orientation as you can and just make the best of it. No, he says, count it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, because Jesus has told you, that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's kind of this downward mobility, you know, into the struggle. And there is something mysterious and beautiful happening which is actually making us stronger. But it hurts, no doubt about it, it hurts. When the potter places the clay that is our lives on the wheel and starts to mold and shape it. When the precious metal of our lives is placed in the fire to refine it. When spiritual muscle and strength is built up by experiencing progressively greater degrees of resistance. When like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, our entire being is gradually broken down and reconstituted into something new, something beautiful and free. We feel the pressure and the reshaping we feel the fire and the muscle burn, the metamorphosis by deconstruction of who we were in order to be who we are becoming. And it hurts. But the good news is this. In this process, a disciple is never alone. You are never alone in this disorientation. The remarkable thing is that Jesus, the one human being who truly lived fully in the world, also struggled with this very human experience of disorientation. And in the midst of that, the newness was happening in and all around him. Philip Yancey wrote a book, book called The Jesus I Never Knew. Just to give this, Jesus is, this idea about Jesus can become very um, connected with so many unhelpful ideas about him. And he wrote a book because he felt he wanted to know who Jesus really was. And he focused on the gospels to say what they really said, not necessarily what people had told him that they said. And he quotes a man by the name of Scott M. Peck, who, who's a psychologist, about his experience of, of encountering the Jesus of the gospels. And this is what uh, Scott Peck said. I was absolutely thunderstruck by the extraordinary reality of the man I found in the gospels, Jesus. I discovered a man who was almost continually frustrated. His frustration leaps out of virtually every page. What do I have to say to you? How many times do I have to say it? What do I have to do to get through to you? 
I also discovered a man who was frequently sad and sometimes depressed, frequently anxious and scared, a man who was terribly, terribly lonely, yet often desperately needed to be alone. I discovered a man so incredibly real that no one could have made him up. It occurred to me then that if the gospel writers had been into PR and embellishment, as I had assumed, they would have created the kind of Jesus three quarters of Christians still seem to be trying to create, portrayed with a sweet, unending smile on his face, patting little children on the head, just strolling the earth with this unflappable, unshakable equanimity. But the Jesus of the Gospels, who some suggest is the best kept secret of Christianity, did not have much peace of mind, as we ordinarily think of peace of mind in the world's terms. And insofar as we can be his followers, perhaps we won't either. We are in his company through every moment of doubt, anxiety, and fear. And though he identifies with every struggle that we might have, he is also much more than simply a friend in the struggle. He is God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of all life and the Lord of all things. And that is good news for us too. At the beginning of this, past, this message, I mentioned times or asked us to think about times when we find ourselves being disoriented. And maybe that's just right now for you, but times when we go travel or we find ourselves in a new situation or we enter into education, we don't know the rules and we're trying to figure it out. So the, the world is a place that constantly brings this to us. It's a challenging place to live. In many ways, we are strangers here on this planet and we don't really know how to live here and we do our best but it's a struggle. Well, Jesus came to earth to show us how to navigate this world fully human and he did it successfully and he can be our guide in that. To his disciples, Jesus said, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. He has accomplished it. He has navigated it and he has shown us what that looks like, and then he can walk with us in this sphere of the world, which is often so difficult, a strange place to be. The kingdom of God presents huge challenges to the ways in which we think and we live. In many ways, we don't know how to live in this new way of being human. It does not come naturally to us. Well, he is the king of the kingdom and a welcoming and transforming guide and companion into the language and the culture and the values and the actual life daily, moment by moment of the kingdom of God. And there is no other guide to this place. These two spheres, to live in the world and to live according to the kingdom. And Jesus is the guide. And, and he is with us and he is for us. As a disciple, your commitment is nothing like the commitment that Jesus has for you. His love for you is fierce. And he is trustworthy, utterly trustworthy. So a disciple is never alone. Not only Jesus, but other disciples are here for us. We pray for one another. We work out together what it means to be sons and daughters of the king of the kingdom and brothers and sisters with Jesus by the indwelling power of his spirit that is transforming us day by day through all these seasons. But of course, we can choose to be alone if we want. And we can drift away from Jesus and one another. And the call is, follow me together. In these very difficult times, there is an open door. May our experiences of disorientation cause us to turn to Jesus, to stop, to pray, 
call someone and know that he is working in us and through us at all times, even when we cannot see it and even when it seems like a struggle. And also know that he understands our struggles and he does not judge or reject us when we act out of the disorienting parts of our lives in ways that can be ugly. In fact, perhaps he's never closer than when we are in those places. A friend of mine once commented on a time when his young kids asked him that classic sibling question to he and his wife, which one of us do you love the most? And after thinking about it for a minute, his wife said, whichever one of you needs us most at the time. When you feel disoriented, take that as a sign that Christ is drawing especially near to you and is changing you in the midst of your pain. We're called to connect. You know, even in this season of social distancing, this church is a, is a, a location, if even virtually, where we can connect with one another and we can connect with God. This is still happening. Uh, there are so many opportunities. I'd encourage you to join a small group, to sign up for pastoral care, to share your prayer requests. If someone comes to mind, give them a call. That is the life of the Spirit in community. And, and God is leading us in all those places to be changed. Um, the journal uh, sheets that we've created is a powerful thing. In fact, today I got a, a, an email from Kaiser, uh, it's my, the medical uh, doctor that I go to, and it had the first thing on the list was the, the powerful health benefits of journaling. And I was like, there's a sign. Print those things out. Put pen to paper like the psalmist did and, and write out your places of disorientation and, and reflect on where you feel this longing to return to what is settled and comfortable or the places that wear that and ask God to show you which of those were just, were stuck and, and help him to break you out of those and then seek God in the midst of the disorientation and say, God, make me new, show me and then write those things down. As we said, when we get back together again, whenever that might be, we can testify to the goodness of God even in the darkest of places and the hardest of times. Draw near to God, draw near to one another. I'm gonna close with a blessing. It's a Franciscan blessing which someone once shared and I found it to be really helpful and I think it applies well to this time. So listen to these words as you reflect on your own current experience and know that you are not alone and though it may be difficult, it is reaping something beautiful that God is doing a wonderful work. May God bless us with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that we may live deep within our hearts. May God bless us with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that we may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war, so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us with enough, enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done. In Jesus' name.
Amen.